thank you all very much for coming. My name is Russell Martin, I'm the director of ArtQuest and also an artist. ArtQuest is a professional development programme for visual artists, supporting visual artists and doing research into their working conditions and motivations and uh, what the world can learn from how artists work and what artists can learn from how the rest of the world works. So this is the first event in our second thematic year. Uh, this year in 2019 we're looking at work, so this seems like a good opportunity to, to draw out some of the more general strands that we'll be looking at through the year. Uh, last year we were looking at space, the space that artists use in London and need uh, to work and live. And there's more information about that on our website. There's flyers with our website address. This talk is also, as well as being part of our programme, is part of the programme for Block 336 and the Finnish Institute in London who collaborated on the residency, the art work residency, which is exhibited um, next door. The talk is uh, it's kind of in the context of the end of the Finland Universal Basic Income experiment. Although, as we were just talking earlier on, it wasn't really universal basic income. Uh, we might touch on that a bit later on. And part of the reason was that, it, it, that one of the specific aims of the experiment was to see if it encouraged people into work, which is not generally what universal basic income is for. The initial results, the very initial results, were released last week and it did find that people who took part in the experiment reported uh, feeling happier, having better well-being, uh, having better health outcomes, uh, increased trust in their local community and politicians, uh, more confident about their finances, unsurprisingly, and 85% uh, of the recipients of, of the, in the trial and 75% of the control group thought that it should be instituted more widely in Finland. As we, I was doing some research around this talk and talking to, to the speakers who I'll introduce in a second, Alice Martin, who's, who's here, uh, mentioned that she's doing research also into universal basic services as an alternative model of uh, universal basic income, where rather than everyone being given money, uh, instead there's certain um, services that everyone has a universal need for would be provided by the state. Things like healthcare, education, uh, legal advice, shelter, uh, transport, also things like TV, internet, um, so, it would, so those services would be provided rather than money to pay for those services. Having said all this as a context, this isn't just to talk about universal basic income, uh, but uh, an element of a much wider conversation, quite open conversation we want to have around uh, work and labour and pay and money and some of the themes that were around the residency and the exhibition. So some of the things I'm interested in talking about is, uh, particularly in the context of artists' work and artists' labour, uh, about the difference between uh, meaningful work, artists often report that they feel their work is quite meaningful, versus uh, general labour or, or kind of uh, less fulfilling forms of labour. Uh, and also when we've done research into asking artists about their working practices and motivations, how and why they work, they, uh, they say that their barriers, the barriers to them being able to work, are all tend to be financial. Uh, some recent research found that 36% of artists earn less than £1,000 a year from their practice. Uh, also, lack of access to finance, difficulty accessing markets are the barriers that people say they have. But when, they ask them, when we ask them about their motivations and why they want to be artists, they all talk about artistic growth, being part of a network, uh, having, maintaining a long practice, spending lots of time on making work, so none of the motivations are financial. So even though, even though artists obviously understand that they need to earn money and everyone needs to earn money in, in the society in which we live, that's not um, generally thought of as being, a particularly, uh, as being a particular measure of success for artists generally. Uh, but despite all of that, 94% of artists in this recent survey said that they would still continue to be artists, even though they're not earning any money and, and uh, find it very difficult quite a lot of the time. So it'll be interesting for me to find out if, that's, if there's research about that in other fields, other kind of freelance activity, if that's reproduced outside of the creative sector. 
One of the main reasons why artists say that they want to continue is because they feel a high level of agency. They get to set their own agendas, they get to work on the things that they want to, which compensates them for the low pay and poor working conditions that they, that they often uh, feel, um, which is interesting in a wider context, a wider conversation about work, given the um, approach of increasing automation and artificial intelligence, removing, uh, arguably going to remove agency from a lot of other kinds of work, as, the, as AI and automation does a lot, increasing amounts of tasks to, to reduce the amount of work that human beings will be doing, and if there'll be any, uh, any impact on, on, how, on how people feel about their work as a result of that. So, so yeah, so through this conversation, we'll uh, be looking at some of these, uh, maybe at some of these, I'm sure, but at many other things that I haven't even thought about. So tonight, I'm joined by uh, Anna Suhonen on, on my right, who's a Helsinki-based Finnish artist, visual artist, who works mainly with video, photography, and installation. Uh, her exhibition is in the gallery at the moment as a result of the artwork residency. The Exhibition Process Accelerator 2.0 presents a factory that chases maximum productivity, satirically reflecting on late capitalism's push for constant economic growth. And on my left is uh, Alice Martin, who's the Head of Work and Pay at the New Economics Foundation um, and leads projects on the future of work and trade unions. Alice is currently working on New Economic Foundation's Shorter Working Week campaign and on collective bargaining uh, worker power, and is writing a book on trade unions in the 21st century for Polity Press. So, uh, maybe if we start with you first, mm -hmm. Anu. Um, can you, I gave a very brief introduction to, you know, one sentence about your work. Uh, could you expand a little bit more about this piece and the kind of wider uh, themes and concerns that your work has? Yes, um, well this is a sort of a um, development of a previous earlier work called Process Accelerator, so this is the 2.0. Uh, the previous work was um, one video piece that's, that is here as well and uh, one piece of sculpture and with this exhibition here I was um, given a chance to sort of um, make it more what it was before because I had a plan of wanting to create a factory or a factory-like uh, facility and um, the, it, it was possible here. So this is why I've, I've been using 3D uh, printing, printing machines here and um, I think it's just very different to show an image of production or a video of production than actually see something being produced mm -hmm. in, the, in, the, in the same sort of premises that you are watching it. So um, my work is really um, more about the um, sort of production, consumption and waste, this kind of cycle that uh, seems to be a bit flawed at the moment in, um, in our so a society. And um, this is the sort of basis, and of course, all of this uh, touches on the on the work itself at, at, at as well. But it's more about the the cycle. Yeah, and where mm. and where work fits some of that, because obviously the things that are making it are mm. machines. It's yeah. it's, a, it's an entirely automatic process. To yeah, to that's keep true. That going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, I noticed also in the interview that you did for mm. the publication, um, there was a question that came up about universal basic income and, and the person interviewing you asked if, it, if you thought it seemed a bit idyllic mm. and you said um, yes but you hoped that you were mm. proved wrong about that. Um, why, what, what, what prompted you to say that? Why do you think mm. it seems a bit, UBI seems a bit idyllic? Well maybe it's because um at the moment, um, in Finland, I feel that um, the government we have at the moment, I, don't, I, I just can't see that it would be in their agenda to advance this kind of idea, which I think is a good idea, but I feel that because um, they've been mo mostly sort of concentrating on sort of cutting sort of uh, the 
costs of everything. So I don't think that they are so interested in sort of um, are the are the is the public sort of happy and healthy and things like that. It's more about sort of cutting costs in every every single possible way. So that's why, at the moment at least, I just I feel it's. Um, so it's more of the kind of political agenda around it that seems idyllic yeah, like rather than yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it the itself. idea itself. It's good, I, I feel, but but how it would be uh, at the moment, I can't see it. And um, uh, Alice, uh, I mentioned in my introduction about universal basic services as well. Uh, I don't know an awful lot about UBI or, and I didn't know anything about UBS until mm -hmm. you talked to me about it a few days ago. Could you, could you talk a little bit maybe about what it is and the differences or the modelling around it and how that is the same or different to UBI? Yeah, so we've been talking about uh, universal basic services almost as a, I suppose, a, a campaign tool to inject a different angle into the, the UBI debate. Um, because there are, there are certain elements of, of UBI that, that we think are exciting and, and the principle behind it of um, having a, you know, a way to basically bring people out of um, a life of precarity and, and to sort of in, underpin everyone's existence with a certain level of economic security so that they can go on and do other things, be it pursuing art or, or um, other, other types of work. Um, we, we kind of agree with that, that general principle that you know, no one should be left so destitute that they um, have to take on really poor quality work or, or do other things to, to sort of get by. Um, so we, we like that element of it, but we, I suppose, are a bit concerned about the uh, sort of individualistic nature of it, the fact that it's a, it's a payment that comes to you individually and you choose um, how you want to spend it. And actually, we know that with the kind of limited trials that have existed so far, and I, and I agree that it's something that's very difficult, if not impossible, to trial, because um, the idea behind it is that it's, it's universal, it's permanent, that it pays enough that you can sort of uh, cover your basic housing costs and, and food costs and whatever else, and that's a very hard thing to do. So I, I agree that the trials have, are probably sort of always destined um, to fail. Um, but I think what what we're attempting to do with our discussion of universal basic services is to inject uh, the theme of, I suppose, collect collectivity and, and, and the, the need to sort of socialise um, the, the kind of basic needs that we all have. Um, and we already do that quite well in this country with the NHS. Um, we don't do it so well with housing. Um, as we all know, there's a housing crisis at the moment. Um, and so uni universal basic services would be an approach to actually ensuring that things like shelter, food, uh, education, health were covered in a way um, that would then allow you to pursue the, these other things, these other interests. Um, and the reason I say it's more collective is because it is taken, uh, it's, it's kind of, I suppose, a form of redistribution. Um, and you get what you need out of it as opposed to getting a sort of one-off payment which you then have to go off and choose how to spend it. Um, so I think that's, that's where we're, we're kind of in, in inserting it as a bit of a provocation there. Um, I think probably because, it, you know, one of the risks with UBI is it's sort of so easily taken away, as easily as it could be given by a government. It could be very easily taken away by, by the next government. Um, whereas with services, uh, say the NHS or schools, they are institutions that involve people working day in day out uh, to carry out a service to their best um, ability, and repealing those those sorts of sort of social institutions and interventions is a much more difficult thing to do. Rightly so, you know you would have trade unions um, who maybe represent the workers in those services, and you had have you have other sort of, I suppose power bases to ensure that um, those, those elements of our economy aren't so easily taken away, whereas a one-off payment could just could be. Could just disappear. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but dismantling the education system takes longer than just stopping a single policy. Yeah, and governments are trying to, do, to, to dismantle oh, yes, <laughs> our yes. services. Oh, no, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it, what always strikes me about 
as a, a kind of a, a similarity between some of the conversations around UBI, perhaps also about UBS as well, and about being an artist, uh, in my own experience of being an artist, is also around this idea that if you enjoy your work, I don't know if you've had this as well, but mm. certainly I, I, when I introduce myself to people as an artist and I mention that it's also, I get paid to do it as well, there seems to be a kind of uh, an idea that if you enjoy your work, then you shouldn't get yeah. paid for it. Yeah. Uh, and there's a kind of moralistic thing around UBI that we've talked about a little bit in the same way that, that you should be, only if you're working hard, whatever hard work is, uh, that sounds like a very indulgent thing to say, but it, like, what, it, no one ever really defines what hard work is. Uh, and uh, yeah, I wonder if, you, if you've ever had that kind of thing as well. Yeah, I think, I think it's very sort of common to have this idea that, that um, also that maybe artists shouldn't be paid, this kind of thing that, because it's your sort of, Passion, mm. your sort of, you've chosen this life, so then, then, it's um, it's up to you in a way. And yeah, I I, I come across it quite often. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's one of the things about UBI as well, this kind of moralistic view of what work is and what it means, yes. and that, that it should be reward. It should be a reward for doing something that you otherwise wouldn't want to do. Mm -hmm which discounts the fact that people need to feel productive and feel part, feel have an agency about their work as well. Yeah, I mean, there's a real similarity, actually, I see um, between your provocation um, with art that, that artists don't tend to work for money or the thing that motivates them isn't money. And I think there's really interesting research that, that you shared on that. And it made me think about actually um, care work and the care economy, which is something that, that we work on at the New Economics Foundation quite a lot, because I think there's a similarity there in the sense that there's an intrinsic value to the thing that you're doing. So care is something that we, as a society, value intrinsically, because partly because we have to do it, but also because it, you know, there's something in our human nature that, that, that means that we want to care for each other and we will care for each other. And most of the, the care work that we do actually happens um, completely outside of... of kind of economy as we know it so it's it's unpaid care work it's it's you know caring for our children caring for our parents caring for our friends and family members and we probably don't want to be paid for that kind of work it's probably right that we're not paid um, but there is care work that we do expect to pay for and we and we do pay for as a society and that's uh, in this country it's child care uh, social care and other other forms um, of kind of institutionalized care and what's interesting about that and it kind of relates to what you were talking about is that uh, we we offer so little money for those for those forms of care work, despite the fact that we as a society recognise the intrinsic value in it. And and I worry that there's that there is a kind of tension there between, or, or there's a there's a causation there between um, recognising the intrinsic value in an act like art or like care, and then and then as a society or or kind of politically deciding that we therefore don't really have to pay much for it. Um, and it's it's really devastating to see. I've recently um, had a child and, and he's started nursery now and, and the people looking after him are paid the minimum wage and they're going on to do babysitting jobs after having done sort of eight, nine hours in a nursery looking after, you know, three, four babies at a time. And I sort of knew that before my personal experience with it, but it, now that I'm, I'm experiencing it, I'm just absolutely appalled that, that we've, we've sort of allowed that to happen. And... Um, yeah, I mean, it comes down to value. It comes mm -hmm. down to it, the financial value, but also the, the societal, cultural value of different yeah. types of work as well. Mm -hmm. And being an artist has always, I think, has often at least been not really been understood mm. more widely about what the value is and the, the old trope of sitting in your studio and yep. gazing out the window and wearing rags and eating boiled potatoes because you don't have any money. And, uh, uh, and but it does, it, being an artist has a much wider impact on culture and society. I mean, it arguably mm. creates culture. Uh, and similarly with, uh, with different types of care work, which, are often, which is a very gendered thing as well. It's mm. often, it's often um, work that's more poorly paid tends to also be work that's been traditionally carried out by women as well. So there's a, there's a kind of misogyny in that as well. Mm. Mm. Um, so do, do you think being an artist is a job? Do you think of it as being a job? I can't really see that as a job because 
a job would be <coughs> something I would get paid <laughs> monthly. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's sometimes difficult to to sort of talk to people about this as a as a profession because um, most artists are well educated and and really sort of really um, take their work really seriously but it's not really a job anyways because there are some parts of it that you could um, maybe call a job if you if it's related to your practice and you do something um, along the lines of that but but mostly it's not a job mm. I'm interested in the, the sort of artist union that, that's been set up and, and how that I'm sure they exist in other countries as well, and I know very little about the artists' union here, other than it exists um, and it was created to to bring a kind of collective voice to artists as as workers, but presumably also in recognition that probably a lot of artists don't relate to mm. to their practice as a job necessarily. Mm. Um, so I don't know if if you must all have any experience of yeah the um, uh, we we uh, collaborated on their launch event. Uh, whenever that was, four, three, four, five years ago. Um, there is a Scottish artist union that's been going for much longer. And uh, I think what's interesting about, the, about having a union, and there hadn't been a union for artists in England for very ever before. Um, and I think it is partly this idea that it doesn't, a lot of people don't identify it as a job. Mm. But in the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years, there has been a lot of campaigning around artist fees, um, around kind of not necessarily trying to campaign to make it look, to, to argue that artists, being an artist is a job, mm. but certainly to say that being an artist is a serious profession mm -hmm. that, that deserves financial reward. <laughs> um, and I think that's, I think that's, I think that's a relatively recent phenomenon. Um, uh, and that might be something that people in the audience have, have uh, some comments about later on. Um, so, yeah, because uh, another thing about uh, being an artist as well is that often, and our research bears this out as well, that artists <coughs> often have other jobs or have jobs that they do on the side to kind of keep it, keep mm. it going. I mean, I work at ArtQuest part-time, mm. three days a week, to, to support um, what I do. I also live in a housing co-op, so I do work for that, which offsets bits of my rent as well, so to kind of cobble it together. And you said, I think, that you, there's other bits of work that you do. Yeah. Um, and are you full-time? I'm not sure. Are you full-time? Mm. You are, yeah. Mm. Uh, so you're the one with the, the proper job. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah okay. And I wonder um, how you feel about those other kinds of work that you do, and mm. if you feel it adds to the art practice, if it's completely separate, if it... I mean, I know uh, years ago, many years ago, I met an artist who... Um, it, uh, in uh, Norway, mm. and he has a, he gets a states one of those state stipend things that the Norwegian government gives some, to some artists. He's quite a well, quite a senior mm. artist, quite well known. Uh, but he still has a job. He mm. he has a job in a local TV station because he says if he stayed in his studio all the time, he would just go mad. So I wonder if if, if you can reflect on any of that about the other work that you do as well. Yeah, well, um, I would say that. This, this past year has been sort of the first time in the whole of my sort of artistic career that I had a, a possibility to work sort of full-time as an artist because uh, most of the time I've had um, more like a full-time job and the art came as a sort of side, sidekick for that because um, most jobs that I, I've done are such that you can't do them part-time or it wasn't possible for me. So then, then the, um, doing art in sort of free time, uh, on your vacations, on holidays, weekends, whatever, then you spread yourself really thin all the time. So this past year has been really sort of great. I had a couple of um, shorter grants that made, made it possible for me to, to work full time as an artist. Then I had a, this... Um, the public art project I was doing so so it's been a new experience for me to work as an artist full-time really enjoyed it um, 
although now when I go back to Finland, I'm, I believe I'm <laughs> going to have to start looking at jobs again. <laughs> yeah. Lovely year, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that the, some of the jobs that you were doing didn't really allow you mm. to do them part-time or, mm. or flexibly. Um, it's one of the things that, that we're interested in, um, the organisation I work for, is, is uh, whether we can have a shorter working week as the norm for, for every type of job, so that you wouldn't have to sort of go for jobs that that allowed you to do them part-time or allowed them, you to do them flexibly because the assumption would be that actually we all should only be working four days a week or even three. So our, our initial report on this issue that we put out almost a decade ago actually was calling for a 21-hour working week as the norm. And uh, for that, you would be paid the same amount as you would be <laughs> for a full-time... Some laughter from the audience. <laughs> it will happen. <laughs> it's coming. Happy um, laughter. <laughs> yeah, and so, and I was, I was commenting just before we, we started the talk actually on how when we first called for the 21-hour working week, uh, we were ridiculed as a, as a think tank and people said that's not possible, the economy will crash, people don't even want to work that little, you know, work's important in society, we, we're, we're a hard-working society, we, we, want, we want full employment, not less employment, you know, all of, the, all of these sort of various arguments, um, but the, 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 the most prominent one probably was just that, uh, you know, it's not possible, we can't do it, um, the, we, we can't afford to do that. Um, and we're finding that now actually um, there's a lot of appetite uh, from politicians of a, of a certain persuasion to actually look at how we can implement a shorter working week in, in Britain and, and looking at how it could be made possible at the level of, of the economy. And it's actually trade unions who are really leading the way on this. So some of you might have heard that in Germany, uh, last year, I think it was last year or the year before, um, a huge manufacturing union representing um, I think a couple of million um, people in Germany won a deal to reduce their working week to 28 hours um, and you know other countries in Europe are already ahead of us generally with the fact that they work less. We know that people work less hours in, in France and have generally more public holidays. In Britain we work the longest hours in Europe. Um, there's different ways you can measure it, but by one measure, the UK actually works the longest hours. And there is no gain there in terms of um, productivity or having a strong economy or you know having happy people. We're, we're kind of failing on all of those things. We've got one of the least productive economies and uh, we have a huge mental health crisis at the moment. People are generally stressed and unhappy in this country. Um, so we're really pleased that, that the shorter working week as, as a serious policy is now back on the agenda and, and uh, yes, I think it, it kind of hopefully brings a lot of benefits to thinking of types of work that have a real intrinsic value and that are very difficult to remunerate with pay, like art, mm -hmm. artwork. Um, so maybe we could all be artists if we only work 21 hours in our other jobs. Well, that's, that's the thing. I mean, what, part of what we've also been looking at is uh, notions around retirement in, in other bits of work that we're looking at to do this year. And uh, most people, well, many people who, when they retire, think, great, now I can be an artist. Now I've got a bit of an income, a bit of a pension. I've got the time. I can go and do that painting that I've always wanted to do. But when you ask artists about retirement, they all say, I'll retire when I die. <laughs> There's kind of, there is, partly because they don't, like 94% of them don't have a pension, uh, but also because what would they do when they, 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 don't, they don't see that as, as a kind of, as an end point. Um, so I'm, I'm going to ask one more question and then I'm going to come out to, to, to you all. So if you've got any uh, questions, do line them up. Um, and actually, it was about the shortened working week uh, that I was going to talk about. <coughs> Other bits of research that we did showed that over half of artists um, reported spending less than 15 hours a week in their studios. So possibly they're, they're then doing that as, as, uh, as other... Uh, because they can't afford to be there uh, and doing it as, as other... Um, uh, having to do other jobs yeah. to support that. Um, so... I, I'm, again, maybe uh, in terms of your experience of being an artist as well and, and doing other jobs, what, how much time would you want to work as an artist? Well, I would want to work all the time, all the time. you know. But um, I don't know, there is, of course, um, 
There is also pluses when you work outside jobs. There is some, something that um, connects you to the um, sort of the rest of the society more when you are not just in your sort of studio working. But you could do that in other ways as well. But um, if I had, uh, if I could choose, I would love to do it so that I would do most of the time artistic work and then have a little piece of time to do some other kind of job or work. And artistic work as in studio practice or all the stuff that involves being an artist? I mean, I, although I have mm. to say, I don't, I'm not sure what the experience is in Finland, but mm. certainly here, uh, it's also like writing press releases and mm. making applications and <coughs> writing yeah. and all it's of that. It's a big part of it. Kind of, yeah. 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 It takes a lot of time. You have to be your own agent and publicist and yeah. do everything. Yeah. Mm. Uh, a few years ago, we did a project in France, and uh, the people that we were working with, we said, okay, so we're explaining what ArtQuest is and what we have, and we have a big website with lots of resources on it. And we're saying, so for example, we can give artists advice about how to write a press release. And they were like, why on earth would an artist need to write a press release? That's what your gallery does. Artists don't have to do that. We're like, oh, it's very different here, clearly, <laughs> to what we're used to. Um, so at that point, if anyone has uh, questions, comments, something, a question for the panel, a general comments and thoughts, uh, be interesting to hear what you have to say. Well, I've got a quick, <coughs> just a quick one about universal basic income. Mm -hmm. So other issues with it. So one thing I've read about is obviously that you mentioned, you know, government can give it, but government can take it away. I wonder if there's also an issue about it. Who kind of generally who gives it, who gives it out? Couldn't just be taken away, could be withheld, could be sanctioned, a bit like that is currently. Who sets the who kind of decides what is the universal basic income? Obviously if you're living in central London and you're trying to get a shelter there, that's gonna be a lot more expensive than so if we're just saying the basic, I was going to push people to the margins potentially. Um, just contrast that with labour, there's issues in the labour market currently. What you, what you can do with your labour and where you can work in the gig economy, and obviously we know that's been squeezed. But nevertheless, you have the right with your labour to offer it or withdraw it. Um, so that sort of gives you a certain amount of agency if we go to a system where you're just given your basic income kind of possibly lose a bit of agency because you don't know, no longer have any labour to offer a withdrawal in the marketplace. So that was just a couple of comments on that. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. You can't strike against <laughs> what, you know, the state or, yeah, the, the forms of collective action you'd need to take in order to ensure that you still got your, your payment would be very different to the ones that we're able to take now. I mean, trade unions here are... are obviously much weaker than they have been in, in previous decades, but they still <coughs> represent a quarter of the working population in this country, which is huge if, if you think about it. And um, they do wield power in that respect. Yeah, you can, you can kind of collectivise your, your voice and, and withdraw your labour. Um, and I suppose not just in pursuit of higher wages, but also in pursuit of, of an improved quality of work. And that, that's something we've not really touched on then in that separation of um, talking about uh, doing your job and then doing the things that you want to do in your own time. You know, there could be a world where the jobs are the things we want to do in our time. You know, it doesn't have to be that we have these monotonous jobs where we feel a very, we feel generally um, a lack of interest or, or agency or, or control over how we're using our time. Um, and I, I know that one of the arguments for universal basic income is that it kind of increases the, the bargaining hand of, of workers to, to basically be able to demand more from their jobs. Um, and I think that's probably one of the arguments that I do like about it. So if you, if you have this basic level of security, then you're not just going to accept uh, a rubbish job, which is the, the kind of position that most of us are forced into at the moment. You just take what, what's available to you. Um, so yeah, I think that's a, that's a really interesting comment. Yeah, I mean, and my understanding about UBI is that it's not intended to replace wages. It's, it's to make sure that the minimum is covered. So there, are, there would still be labor involved that you would be able to give a withdrawal, exactly as you say, but it would be 
labour that you'd be more interested in or that you'd, or would be less uh, uh, drudge kind of labour? Um, I mean, I'm not an advocate for UBI at all. I'm just <laughs> interested in it. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, I'm, I'm not an economist and it's, it's a very complex area. And that's why when I, the universal basic services approach sounds like a really interesting way to, to circumvent some of that stuff. Um, yeah, and, and also another argument for UBI uh, is that it gives people more time to uh, buy stuff. So it kind of props up the consumer economy as well. If people, have, if people are less worried about money, then they'll still be able to go and spend stuff. Which I'm not a great advocate of as well, I have to say. So. Yeah, there is some in interesting research done actually on, on how your consumer spending habits might change. And this um, plays into hopefully your, your, um, your exhibition, um, which basically if you have more, the, I think the evidence shows that if you have more time, you make better decisions about how you spend your money. Mm -hmm. So one of the arguments, or the economic arguments, for why we, we are able to reduce our working hours without doing damage to the kind of economy overall is because we'd have more time to spend. Um, so we, you know, we'd prop up economic activity by, by buying more stuff. But along with that, uh, we'd actually be making more conscious decisions over what we're buying. So the outcomes for the environment in theory, could, could be better mm. um, because we're not just living this kind of hand-to-mouth life where we want everything right now very convenient um, and sort of producing a lot of waste mm. because of it. Um, was, was universal basic income in your mind in when you were devising your show? Was it, was it part no, of No, not at all. Despite the brief. Despite the Yeah. Yes. Have you are advocating shorter working week? Um, how many days are you advocating and how many hours have you considered productivity? And how do you equate the earnings of shorter working week with how we work today? They're really good technical questions that there is a lot of detail still to be worked out and I think the, the best way of approaching it or the way we're, we're trying to approach it is looking sector by sector at how this could be achieved so we're not suggesting that the government could suddenly legislate to say that everyone should just you know stop going into work one of the days a week um, but actually it might be done in a kind of gradual way so one good example is the Royal Mail here in the UK um, the Communication Workers Union that represents postal staff across the country has just won a deal to reduce the working week by one hour, which doesn't sound like much, but it's a kind of gradual step, and the, the plan is to, year-on-year, uh, year campaign to reduce the week by another hour. Um, and they've left it to the, the, the postal workers themselves to decide how to implement that change. So some are choosing to simply take... Uh, I think an hour off, off the week, others will be choosing to take 15 minutes off a particular shift, others are choosing to take it as an overtime payment. Um, so it's really different in, in different areas of work, um, but I think there's the, the kind of model that, that is um, emerging is that basically the, it needs to be negotiated and really the role of trade unions is quite central to it because they represent the people who are actually doing the work and therefore are able to negotiate directly with employers to, to do it in a way that doesn't damage the, the kind of productive activity of, of that business, as you mentioned, productivity. And uh, just also to add to that, and then I'll come to you, sir, uh, the Welcome uh, uh, Trust. Trust, yes, which is a massive um, medical charity uh, and medical research um, uh, organization they've just unilaterally reduced all of their working hours to four days a week but are still paying everyone the same amount of money uh, because they recognize that, that if you have more time off that can actually help productivity mm -hmm. uh, because if people are happier they're more satisfied they have greater well-being they have better work-life balance so that can actually help 
the productivity of the organization as well. And also uh, the, um, the whole idea, the whole uh, concept of the weekend being Saturday and Sunday is, is, a, is a, a construct that was created, uh, I think I'm right in saying, by uh, Henry Ford to begin with. Uh, it used to be people worked six days a week and then he decided that everyone in his factory would work five days a week because then they'd have two days to buy cars and go on trips on their cars. So he knew that the people working for him were also the people who were buying the cars. So there, is, there are arguments in, in either direction about productivity. Um, I think it is exactly levels of pay, exactly as you say, how it, is it that everyone gets paid less or gets paid the same amount, or how does that work out is, is obviously a very key part, part of that, yeah. Um, I wanted just to make a start a cynical point. I think the uh, part-time working issue can be related to your status in work. I mean, I can think of times in my career where we've had uh, office managers who always work from home on Fridays. And I suspect that really means they work from Monday to Thursday and get paid for Friday as well. And yet, if you happen to be a Tesco shelf packer or something, they'll be telling you, oh, well, you've got to come in at 6 o'clock on Mondays and Tuesdays, come in at 2 o'clock on Wednesday, and then you can only be paid for 30 hours a week because that's all we're going to pay you. And it's a form of oppressing people in a Tesco situation, whereas in a high-class office situation, it's a form of corruption in the Italian method where you leave your, your, your coat on the back of the chair and still get paid. I think that's a really good point. What, you're, what you've basically pointed to is the inequality at the moment of people who can choose to take more time off and people then, and the fact that most people actually can't. Um, and so our, our work in this area is very, um, very much about underpinning and ensuring that the incomes would remain the same. Um, and that's why it's 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 a more it's a kind of complex um, or there's a more gradual process that would need to happen to uh, ensure that people who work shifts, for example, still get to benefit from this kind of thing. So it isn't just having a Friday off um, for everyone. Um, but there's a something that came to mind when Russell mentioned the fact that we didn't used to have the weekend. So I think there's a, there's a general sense that um, the amount of time we spend in work is, is like a bit like the weather. Like we don't have control over it, but we do. It's a, you know, it's a choice. It's a societal and political choice that's developed over time. Um, we didn't used to have an eight-hour working day. That was something that was won by, by trade unions. Before that, you would have to work you know, as many hours as you could physically stay awake for. Um, so there's, there's definitely scope to, to kind of reduce and, and, and reshape it. Um, more, um, and then just on the Welcome Trust, they've they've actually not reduced the the week yet. They've just committed to looking at it. Oh, I see. Yes. Okay. Oh, well. But it's it, but it's huge. It's huge as... news that they have yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. they have eight hundred em employees there. So it's it's a big, a big example of. Do you know where that's come from? Where that conversation has come from? The Welcome Trust. I think basically that I think it's <coughs> around the kind of well-being issue that you mentioned. So there's there's evidence there to show that. Um, that if you work less you, and you enjoy your time more at work, you'll, you'll do better work. And, and that's not just in terms of um, productivity necessarily, but uh, well, I, I suppose things like you have better staff retention, so people leave less. You know, people quitting and having to retrain staff is actually a huge cost to businesses. So if you can have people that stay um, for a number of years, it's, it's, it kind of makes business sense. Um, and also, Kind of studies of, of shorter working week trials has shown that um, people take far less sick days and they just generally are more present and able in, in work when they're when they are there so i think with the welcome trust they presumably are, are just wanting to be on the front foot really with a with something that's increasingly being seen as as quite a positive move for a progressive employer um, so i think we'll see more more organisations um, following that, that lead, really. There's already a number of small businesses across the country who, are, who have implemented it. Yes? Yeah, I just wanted to ask Alice a question, just it's a context thing. Really. I just wanted to know, um, and other people might know it already, what sort of organisation you work for? Is it, is it a campaigning organisation? Is it education? Who's paying for the people in your organisation? 
Good question. Um, we're a think tank, uh, but we're a charity, is, is our kind of uh, legal status. And we're independent, so we're not uh, working with any political party. And we have the top mark for our transparency rating in terms of funds. So there's a, I think it's Transparency International rank think tanks and, and other sort of lobbying organisations in terms of um, how transparent they are about who gives them money. And, and, and we get a good mark there. So basically, on the whole, we're funded by individual grants, either of, um, you know, lots of small amounts of money from individual supporters, um, but also charitable grants that we apply for. So like the Wellcome Trust, in fact, we would, uh, we're not funded by them per se, but they're the kind of foundation that we would, um, that we would go, go for. And as I was saying just before when we were chatting, we're, I think we're probably considered um, a bit of an outlier organisation in the world of think tanks and, and generally the things that we talk about and promote um, often aren't perceived as being policy ready or, or kind of politically um, palatable at the time, but give it a few years and they tend to trickle down and, and now actually we're seeing, I mean, the Labour Party manifesto is largely made up of, of ideas that... Um, that, that we've been talking about. So there's, there's a shift happening at the moment. Mm -hmm. I was going to sort of, I suppose there's a question, but um, the idea of kind of UVI might become kind of essential in the future if we go down this kind of next wave of industrial, uh, industrialization with automation and um, kind of intellectual labor starting to be eaten up by machine learning, AI, things like that. And this whole, like, you know, people are losing jobs, potentially, and that may get worse. Even jobs that aren't your repetitive, kind of boring, mundane labour. This is like proper thinking, intellectual labour, that potentially um, jobs like that could start to go. And then there might be less work anyway. And, and what can people, yeah, what, what will happen then? Maybe we'll need um, less working, it will just happen naturally anyway. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's, you know, it will as well leave more time for being creative and more time. But it's sort of something that it's, it's difficult to see in what way that will pan out. Um, yeah, it feels to me like there's definitely a change coming, whether we like it or not. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it would make more sense to be prepared for it rather than just let it happen. But yes, it is, um, uh, it is not just... The, the drudgy stuff that, that gets, um, that get, that's being replaced. I was at a talk uh, last year, and one of the people doing the presentation says that it's like entry-level legal jobs are being replaced by AI. Uh, quite a lot of medical jobs, um, cancer screening, uh, that kind of stuff is being replaced by AI. But the thing that AI and automation isn't replacing is how you clean behind the taps. There's, cert there's certain manual dexterity stuff that humans can do that robots at the moment can't do. But I mean, even walking, robots are not very good at walking. So, uh, so, so yes, there's kind of um, uh, manual labour that is a, a lot of which has been automated away anyway, or, or te technology has taken it off our hands. But, but there is still quite a lot of it that remains. Um, it's also I also find it interesting that a lot of the arguments is. Some of the arguments are that artists will, will be the last ones to be automated, and yet there are um, AIs that uh, compose music, yeah. which uh, people, have, people report having an emotional response to mm -hmm. until they find out it's been done by a, a computer and then they feel a bit cheated by it. Um, so, so yeah, so it's, it's, it's quite open as to which way a lot of this stuff might go, I think. But it's like even some people would argue, well, there'll be loads of programmers and there'll be programmers. But they're de designing algorithms to design algorithms. So it will literally turn to like these very top, top workers that are controlling. But yeah, cleaning taps, yes. <laughs> sweeping roads. Yeah. Dog walking. Dog walking, <laughs> yes. yes. But then maybe, you know, maybe that's something we would be for. It's like mm. maybe we, there's some work that we do two days a week and then the rest of the time we're doing things that maybe we don't even know yet what those <coughs> beneficial things could be, but maybe it's something, I don't know, kind of utopian view of that, but maybe not. Yeah. We don't live in a certain, um, you know, um, more rich uh, nations and things anyway. We have to move for work, which 
And then climate change, anyway, so I don't yes. know. <laughs> no, it's a really all all interconnected, for sure, yeah. 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 Yeah, for me, it's kind of, it's about the difference between a job and work. And jobs are one thing I, we talked about. Is an artist, is mm. being an artist a job? Uh, yes or no, but it's, it's definitely a lot of work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and kind of, I mean, I remember when I was in art school, my first sculpture teacher says, well, you never get, artists don't get holidays. Mm. You're, always, you're always working in some way. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was just wondering if you guys think we're now moving to a situation in which hard work is um, immoral. So this, there's a circularity in saying that we should all be asking for more from our jobs. But that, it does cast a bit of judgment on, the, on work that is inherently hard and unpleasant. And not rewarding. So that, like, the thing that defined the decade I was born was mines closing in the north, um, whole communities that took pride in like graft as a, as an idea. Like, is that now? Can, do we now have a moral imperative to get rid of all those, all of that kind of work? Because you can't imagine anyone working in a mine today. And that that's a, that's a, that's a quite a quick social change, really, to move in in 30, 40 years from a position in which closing those mines is a scandal to a position in which working in those mines would now be completely unacceptable. I watched a documentary about the Amazon warehouses a few, a few years ago, and the, the job looked awful, but it, made, it did many think, are we now in a stage where a job that is that hard is just morally unacceptable? I think you've kind of pointed to the fact that um exploitation and forms of exploitation through work are ever-changing. And so, yes, there are less people. I mean, there are still 700 people working in the UK in coal mines. Uh, I don't know if the, I don't think the jobs are as um, probably involve such a manual element as they would have done. Um, but it is, it is still an industry that exists in a, in a very small way in this country. Um, but I think that sort of opposition between manual labour and then... or, or your example of, of the Amazon warehouse, I think, points to the fact that there are very there's a potential to f- to create very bad forms of work that don't necessarily involve a manual element. I think that's almost a red herring, whether it's sort of graft or not. Um, it can still be a horrible job because you're being potentially because you're being watched, because you're being monitored, because you have no freedom to go to the toilet when you need to. You're, you know, you're you're kind of in a living and working in a in a in a surveillance state um and just a sobering note as well on the kind of question about techno utopias and are are we moving to a place where we're we're kind of not going to have any work anyway so um how do we manage the transition at the moment in this country we, we pay such poor wages that actually a lot of industries that could be automated aren't being um because it's actually cheaper to just pay people to do the work than it is to actually by machines to do the work, so I think we're quite a way off that 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 end point. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you that there's a kind of there is a an industrial transformation happening, um, and and there are various ways that, that we could be preparing for it. And and hard work is also, I mean, politicians are very fond of saying that they're looking after hardworking families, without you know, kind of defining what families are and without defining what hard work is as well. And I wonder, in, in the examples that you were talking about around mining and Amazon Warehouse, that it's, it's, it's physically challenging work for sure, and in that sense it is hard work, but it's also quite humiliating work as well. Not being able to go to the toilet when you need to is quite a humiliating position to be in. Uh, so I think it's as much to do with uh, the agency that people have for the types of labour that they perform and how that, that agency is increasingly being pushed, as well as the money, the agency is being pushed up the, the, the work food chain as well. So it's, you get kind of 26 people at the moment owning as much as 50% of the rest of the world. They are the ones with the, the agency and the power to make the decisions. Um, it's not really answering your question, but... Uh. I, just, I think that might be the future revolution, though, that we, we now expect in a very short amount of time people to have agency. Now that's, that's a very compressed timeline in the history of work mm-hmm. to expect people to have agency. And actually, it's a lot of pressure on individuals. So it's, it's, it's very easy to be dissatisfied with your job that is menial and not inherently unrewarding. If you're being told from this side, 
you should be looking for more than this. Yeah, and, and also, I think there's, there's also a, an international element to this as well. So yeah, there's 700 people working mining here, but that's not the same as in many other countries around the world where we get mobile phones, with the raw materials from mobile phones. There's still a lot of mining going on. It's just not British people doing it in the UK. So, yeah. Yes, we have time for one. We'll have your question, and then we'll have your question, and then we'll be, we'll be done, I think. But yes, kind of. As an artist, are you comfortable with the shorter working week? Listening to your experience in the last one year, what is your view of UBI? Mm. Well, as an artist, um, if there was uh, UBI as a sort of full full model being able to sort of um, to have that, that would, I think, for artists and for other people as well, I think it would sort of make, make it possible to, to, to sort of <laughs> realize your life in a very different way because I don't know. It's it just for an artist. It would it would just make it make it more simpler, more sort of easier easier passage of how do you sort of organize your time and how do you do other things? Because if if you have to spend most of your time thinking how to pay the rent and get the money to do other other things that you have to, then it's just a Shorter, shorter span of doing creative stuff or whatever you want to do. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. Yeah, what about the basic income? Universal basic income? Well, if we were, if we, if we had basic income, that would help a lot, I feel. But we don't have it at the moment. And this, this model that we um, uh, tested in Finland, it was just, a, I, I feel, a very sort of partial, partial model that didn't change that much. Yeah, it was, it was replacing unemployment benefit for people who were unemployed. Yeah, yeah. 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 Sorry. Would you rather be in Finland or Britain? <laughs> no, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I enjoy my life in Finland, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, finish us off. I have a follow-on sort of question and comment from what you were saying about UBI being essential. Oh yeah, one comment on that actually in terms of the optimization of labour. There are currently robots that can pick fruit because they damage the fruit, so you need like cleaning the behind the sink, which is kind of interesting. Um, but I hadn't, I'd sort of been thinking that UBI was essential too, but I hadn't thought about universal basic services. So I just wondered if you could say a little bit more about what that might look like. Yeah, well, I suppose in the context of a, a transition to, uh, whether it's a transition to a more automated um, world of work or a transition to... Uh, a less carbon intensive world where we're producing less um, in a kind of carbon in, in intensive way um, there there will necessarily be changes to to the way um, we work in terms of the hours in terms of the types of jobs that exist in the country in different places there are kind of implications for people in different regions um, if certain industries are kind of replaced or, or face decline um, and so we do need to prepare for that and we need to have we need to ensure that we have services really to, to kind of underpin that transition in a way that means it can unfold um, fairly and without leaving communities destitute so um, really it would it would mean um, taking an NHS approach to different areas of, of our lives, so um, housing and, and properly funding education so that we don't have 
the kind of inequalities emerging that, that we do have at the moment. Um, a, a colleague was telling me recently she's been talking to the musicians' union quite a lot about the kind of precarity of the type of work that they're doing and, and a lot of uh, musicians who are also music teachers in schools are facing, and, and I think this is the same for, for art teachers in schools as well, they were saying this, it's the same um, changes happening, basically you're being put onto temporary contracts and, and your kind of relationship with the, the children that you're teaching is, is, is changing, is becoming you know, a lot worse, a lot more kind of superficial. And this isn't happening with other, other subjects, so it isn't happening in the sciences, it isn't happening with, um, with maths. And so there are inequalities that are kind of emerging from our, our current system and, and that are going to basically just get worse if, if we don't plan for them. So, yeah, universal basic services would see our services properly funded in a way that yeah, didn't let that happen. Great. Well, um, thank you, uh, Alice, and thank you, Anu, for your contributions there, and thank you, all of you, for your contributions too. Uh, thanks also to Block 336 and the Finnish Institute in London. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you.